The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles. The last book in Jesus' Bible. These giant books in the Old Testament used to be one. In Hebrew, there were no vowels. They would pronounce words with vowels, but they didn't write the vowels into the text. And when the Jews took on Greek language, Greek includes the vowels in the writing. And so... The books got twice as long when you add vowels into the words, so now we have First and Second Chronicles, but it's all one book. The Bible Jesus used, we have come to the last book, and I certainly had planned on more than this, more than one week on Chronicles. Um, one of the most terrifying, edifying classes in my life was called Hebrew Rapid Reading. And the book of choice that semester um, was Chronicles. In the classroom, we had to read all of Second Chronicles in Hebrew. And then on my own, I had to read all of First Chronicles. And the final exam included both books. And you're not made to read that fast <laughs> to uh, work through it. What kept me going was the sustained doxological refrains. These statements that just kept coming up. This book focuses much more on words than it does on story. And in those words are bound up all these heartfelt exaltations to our God. That He is great, that He is sovereign, that His purposes stand. That's what kept me going for that semester. And I kept coming back and telling Teresa so that it could keep her going too. Chronicles has three basic parts. This is a book at the climax of Jesus' Bible, the book just before Matthew in our Bibles. The preservation of kingdom hope, foundational portraits of kingdom hope, and the passing away and rebirth of kingdom hope. This is a book about kingdom hope. At the climax of Jesus' Bible, at the, at the very end, it's going to end with a big Call, keep looking, keep hoping. It demands a sequel. Next week, the last of the Hobbit movies comes out. <laughs> I know that. I have a, an oldest daughter who's been reminding me of it. Sequels leave you hanging, longing for more. This is the end of the Old Testament, and it ends demanding a sequel. You'll see that, I hope. It's difficult read to start out. In most times, we come to the end of Kings, and we say, all right, it's time for Chronicles. Nine chapters of genealogy. So edifying, devotionally uplifting. <laughs> and what's it there for? 
It begins, first word of the book, anybody know? Adam. At the end of the Old Testament, last book, culminating, it takes us all the way back. It starts with Adam and it it leads us all the way up to the call of Cyrus and the return of the exiles into the land. This is a book that ends with the decree from Cyrus that Israel can return. That means it was written by those living in the land. And I believe it was written by those who recognized that what they experienced in Ezra and Nehemiah was not the real, ultimate restoration. Stage one, yes, but not stage two. They're longing for a new David. They're longing for a new temple. A temple that wouldn't be built by hands, but the same presence of God now working through His people and His glory filling the earth. A temple that would include worship, not only of the reunited tribes of Israel, but those from the nations, the curse of Adam having been overcome, and the blessing of Abraham having been poured out through the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Messiah, the Servant, the Branch, now bearing fruit and building a new creation. Genealogies from Adam to Cyrus's decree, that's the preservation of kingdom hope. Israel's able to put themselves on the map. Is God still concerned with us? That's their question. Is God still building His kingdom? We're back in the land, but there's no king. We're back in the land, the enemies abound. Indeed, we are still slaves. We're back in the land, the temple that's been built is nothing. Indeed, the presence of God does not appear to have returned to the temple. Malachi chapter 3 says they're still longing for the day when God will return. And in that day, it will be the final day of the Lord when all enemies are put down. That's what God does at the cross. He punishes His enemies. That is, all those who are identified with Jesus. And Jesus stands there taking the fiery wrath of God upon Himself as the climax of Israel's covenant. That future judgment day brought into the present and laid on the person of Christ on behalf of all the redeemed. But for those, even in Israel, who do not put their trust in God and His King, they remain under the curse, in exile, separated from God. And if they do not turn and submit, then the day of the Lord that Jesus bore on behalf of all the redeemed will then That day of the Lord will now come, but it will not be on Jesus, it will be on them. God's judgment either falls on the sinner or on the substitute, and this book anticipates both. It's centered on the temple, wherein all hope lies. After the nine chapters of genealogy, we move into the story, and the story controls the rest of the book. First, we get the focus on David and on Solomon. Twenty chapters focused on David. Think about how the book of Samuel and Kings is put, books of Samuel and Kings are put together. You get all those chapters in Samuel that are devoted to Saul. Saul shows up in 1 Samuel 8, and Saul dies. I don't even remember. 1 Samuel 29. All that space given to Saul as David is rising. In this book, no. Saul gets a tiny genealogy. 
then he gets 14 verses, and then we jump right into David. It's as if all of history from Adam and even Saul's reign was just prefaced to get us to Dave. All of history from Adam has been anticipating the day when the Redeemer would come that David is a picture of and a pointer to. Whereas Kings focuses on Solomon being the temple builder, Chronicles says it's mostly about Dave. He's the one who receives the blueprints from God like Moses did on Mount Sinai. He gets the picture, the revelation, and then he makes on earth a model of what he has seen in heaven, just like Moses did. Where does he decide to build the temple? It's at the place where his census, that sinful census, comes to climax. And remember, he buys the mound of Aruna. I think he was a Hittite, but I don't remember. Anyway, he buys that mound and he sets up the altar. And then at the beginning of Second Chronicles, what do we learn? That very location where he builds the altar was the ancient Moriah, the same place that Isaac was almost sacrificed. That the temple itself is built in the same place where substitution was declared way back in Genesis. And that tabernacling presence of God now comes to rest, not in a tent, but in a building. And that building is twice the size of the tabernacle, but it includes the same two central elements. The Holy of Holies at the center of the first quadrant, where God is reigning over the Ark of the Covenant, and the altar of burnt, the bronze altar of burnt offering at the center of the second quadrant, Declaring the holiness of God. God is sovereign. And if you want entrance and enjoyment of His presence, you can only come through the altar. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The kings that take this central sanctuary seriously are exalted in this book. Who follow in the path of David of treasuring this great king seated on his throne over all. All the rest are passed over. As we move into the divided kingdom, the passing away and rebirth of kingdom hope, everything in Chronicles is focused only on that southern kingdom of Judah. In Kings, it goes back and forth. During the reign of the northern king, during the reign of the southern king, and it, it goes back and forth because there was 20 wicked kings in the north. There were 18 wicked kings in the south and only two godly ones. This book is different. It doesn't focus on the negative. David and Bathsheba episode isn't even mentioned in this book. All the wickedness of the northern kings, not even addressed. Everything is focused on Jerusalem, on the kingdom of David, and on the temple of God. And all the kings are simply evaluated on whether or not they're taking God's presence seriously. And this book then provides a paradigm for what real worship is about. Kingdom hope will be built upon, will be only uh, enjoyed in the context of a people getting involved in what the king, David, the ideal king, was most passionate about, the temple of God, the presence of God. 
Kingdom hope will exist only wherein a people surround the new King David and take seriously the presence of God and desire to make that presence known to the ends of the earth. That's the message of the book. And it sets up a people who are now in exile looking at an empty building that doesn't at all compare to the temple that David set up and Solomon constructed. It doesn't compare in any way. The exile has come. The temple was destroyed. They've built something that's only a puppet theater. This doesn't compare at all. And then Chronicles is placed at the end of the book, chronologically opposite of Ezra and Nehemiah. So the last verses of Chronicles are identical to the first verses of the book of Ezra. They're identical, word for word. Chronologically, Ezra and Nehemiah continues the story of Chronicles, but not theologically. Ezra and Nehemiah shows, remember me, O God, for good. That's the last word of Nehemiah. The book ends showing that the first restoration, physical return to the land, did not produce. Chronicles sets us up for a greater restoration. One more than Ezra and Nehemiah ever anticipated. An eschatological restoration that just as the first temple was led by the King David, so the new temple that Cyrus decrees to him, may, may the Lord your God be with you and let him who wants to build the temple, let him go up to a greater Jerusalem with your greater king to see the greater temple. And you turn the page, and what you read in Matthew 1.1 is the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And you get 14 generations from Abraham to David. 14 generations from David to the exile. 14 generations from the exile to the birth of Jesus. And then you find people from Mesopotamia arriving saying, where's the king of the Jews? And then he's born, and he's named Emmanuel, God with us. The last words of Chronicles, may the Lord be with you. May the Lord be with you. Let him go up to the new Jerusalem, to the restored kingdom. May the king rise who will build the temple, just like the original David built that temple. And you turn the page, and then it happens. And then we're going to see that Matthew 28, the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. That that, Matthew 28, parallels, there's three different key connections with the end of Chronicles. Suggesting that just as Cyrus brought stage one and commissioned the return to the land, that's what Isaiah had predicted, that the return to the land would be by God's uh, agent named Cyrus. Stage two return that would include reconciliation with God, forgiveness of sins, overcoming of all enemies. Stage two would be brought about by the servant David in the line of Jesse. God's servant, the one who would suffer and die, and through that judgment, bring his kingdom. And when you come to the end of Matthew, 
all about the kingdom of God through Jesus, the one whose name is Emmanuel, I am with you. You come to the end of Matthew and Jesus declares, I'm the king and I am with you. He is taking upon himself the presence of God. Chronicles said, may the Lord be with you. Jesus says, I am with you and I have all authority. Cyrus had authority on earth. Jesus has authority on earth and in heaven, it says. And what he's commissioning is the building of the temple. Jesus sets up to build a temple, but not made with hands. A temple of people. He, the cornerstone. The apostles surrounding him as the foundation. And upon him, the church of Jesus Christ. And it begins in Jerusalem. And then it moves to Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. The temple expanding, just as the Garden of Eden was a temple with Adam serving as its priest and the presence of God being put on display through the Garden of Eden and always the goal of the Garden of Eden, fill the earth, Adam, multiply, subdue it, take my image to the ends of the earth. Now in Jesus, the last Adam, he reconstitutes a new Garden of Eden, a new temple around himself. He is the temple and then he brings a people, gathers them around himself and now those people, as enjoying the presence of God, what we see is the Holy of Holies itself in the person of Jesus. He is the tabernacling presence of God in the New Testament. That tabernacling presence begins to fill the earth just like it was promised to do, commanded to do in Genesis 1.28. The Garden of Eden would be ever-expanding as the image bearers would multiply and be ever-increasing, fill the earth with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Chronicles end setting us up for the coming of Jesus and the expansion of the global temple. And then you come to Revelation... And the city, Jerusalem, comes down. That Jerusalem fills the earth. It's in the shape of a cube, like the Holy of Holies was a cube. The city is a cube. And the city equals the new heavens and the new earth. The entire new creation, now physical, not just spiritual, now physical. That's where all the nations are gathered, and right in the center is Jesus. The Lord seated on his throne and the Lamb simultaneously giving glory, displaying greatness so that there's no specific building called the temple. Instead, what you have is Jesus. He is the temple and we're gathered around him enjoying not in some ephemeral spirit in separated reality, but physically in or on the earth with new bodies, enjoying the tabernacling presence of God that has now filled the entire earth. Chronicles anticipates this. So that's where I'm heading today. Teresa told, <laughs> Teresa told me, say right up front what you want to get to because I anticipated more weeks on Chronicles and now I have... Uh, I don't know, a little more than 15 minutes if I keep up with Jason's sermon this morning. 
Is God still interested in us, and is he still intent on consummating his kingdom plan? The answer is yes. So Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth. Not going to read them all. It just picks up, and for the next four chapters, it moves us from Adam to David. In order to put David on the map, for four chapters, just walking from Abraham, sorry, from Adam to Abraham, from Abraham to Dave. In the meanwhile, it gets to Judah, and it begins to expand on who Judah was. It starts the book with a focus intently on Dave, and then we move on, and it focuses on the Levites. Why? Because the Levites are in charge of temple worship. They lead in the celebration of the presence of God. The first nine chapters, are they, they cover a number of the other tribes in order to show that there's a united people around the presence of God. But principally, these nine chapters are about David and the Levites. In order to show the centrality of Jerusalem, the kingship of God, Manifest on earth through David of all other people. So, God's purposes since Adam still stand, that's what they need to know. And he'll use his kingdom people, represented by his king in the line of David, to overcome curse and establish global blessing. Now we move to chapter 10. See, we're just flying. Fourteen verses given to Saul. He, his reign is merely a literary foil. He's a character on the scene simply designed to contrast with the real king. And this book doesn't see fit to focus on all of Saul's sickness, spiritual disability, because this is not a book designed to focus on the negatives of Israel's past. These are a people that are full, well, fully well aware of the negatives of the past. What they need is a portrait of hope. And so Chronicles goes out of its way to just focus on those parts of the story that exalt the bigness of God and faith in God. And so you walk through, and this is a massively edifying book. It's why it's in the writings and not in the prophets. It comes at the end of... Jesus' Bible, giving remarkable hope. So following nine chapters of genealogy, 20 chapters are devoted to David's reign. This is what we read in verse 14. Saul did not seek guidance from the Lord, therefore the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. That's all we need to know. An important part of Israel's history, the monarchy... But the monarchy isn't about Saul, it's about David. And all the rest of the monarchy after David is going to be measured in light of David. He wasn't perfect, but he honored God even in his brokenness. When he stumbled, he stumbled toward repentance rather than away from it. That characterized David's life and it set him up to be the ideal picture, the ideal Old Testament pointer to the super David. So, the narrative opens with David suggesting that all of Israel's history, all those genealogies were designed to get us here. 
How do we preach those genealogies? How do we find our hearts edified? Know this, God was at work. And as dark as it got, what he started with Adam hadn't ended. He was still on the throne. We need to hear that. As dark as it gets, we have a God who is still on the throne. And his purposes, ultimately through David and the ultimate super David named Jesus, are still at work. They haven't stopped. Three-fourths of the Bible is devoted to darkness, principally. And through all of it, God was still on the throne, nothing catching Him off guard. Nothing. Purposeful at every step to bring about David so that you and I might have hope for a greater David. One who, even now, has come and will come again. Judah, your brothers shall praise you, it said in Genesis. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Peoples from every tongue and tribe and people and nation surrendered to the Judean king, now known in this book as David. Now as we walk through this, if you just begin to page through after chapter 10, begin to page through and begin to read the headings all the way up to chapter 29, you'll see so much of the weight is given to David's temple focus. So we start out, David's anointing and power. He comes to kingship. And the Lord is with him in a strong way. In 12.22, we read, From day to day, men were coming to David to help him, until there was a great army like an army of God. David is committed to see God exalted at the center of the kingdom. So what does he do? I want where I am king to be the very place where God's kingship is seen. David's throne is set up in Jerusalem, so God should be here because I'm merely a representative of him. So what do we read? Chapter 13, the ark is brought from Kiriath-Jerim, where it had lasted for 20 years after, remember, um, under Samuel... Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, had brought the ark out. The Philistines had captured it. Massive plague had hit the Philistines. They put the ark in a cart, sent it back to uh, Israel. The cows went, and after 70 men, they opened up the ark. They looked inside, and the holiness of God annihilated them. After they were killed, they put the ark in a barn in Kiriath-Jerim, where it was for 20 years until David showed up as king and brought the ark to Jerusalem. So he brings the ark to Jerusalem. It mentions his success in battle, and then he builds the tabernacle here. It had been in Gibeon. But he's going to set up a tent in Jerusalem for the Ark of the Covenant. And then in chapter 16, he sings this great song. 
It's found in Psalm 105 as well. He sings this great song, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, chapter 16 of 1 Chronicles. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the peoples. Verse 14, He is the Lord, our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Oh, remember His covenant forever. The word that He commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that He made with Abraham, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan. David is so mindful that what he is about is what God started way back then. He connects us with Abraham and all of a sudden, a whole bunch comes to our mind. Not only the kingdom promises that he would reign from the Euphrates down to Egypt. And that happens in David's reign. But on the other side of Israel being a nation in the land, the king, the ultimate super king was to rise and through that super king, The enemy's gates were to be possessed, and through that super king, all the world would be blessed. David is establishing stage one of the Abrahamic promises. Israel is a nation like no other in all the ancient world at the time, under David. And it sets us up to hope for something greater. Chronicles is moving us to that something greater. Because the nation after David is going to dwindle and go down. It's going to enter into exile. They're going to return to the land as a small band. 50,000, 47,000 under Haggai and Zechariah. Only 2,000 more under Ezra. And most of them staying in Babylon, and that's where we get the Esther story. Such a small group returning, and yet enough to let there be descendants of David in the land one of them residing in Bethlehem, having descendants that go, one living in Nazareth, so that when the census is called for, Joseph is required to go back to Bethlehem where Jesus is born. Verse 31 of chapter 16, Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice and let them say among the nations, The Lord reigns. This book, I'm not going to be able to go into it as much as I would love, but this book does a lot to say God isn't just focused on the United Tribes of Israel. He's focused on the world. And what he's doing in David, setting up the temple, is anticipating the day so the world is going to come and see. The temple is going to be glorious. The world's going to come and see, but the temple is a building. It's in a physical place. But when Jesus comes, the the temple has been pointing to Him. He's the person. And then He gives His Spirit and allows that Holy of Holies, the temple, to not be set up in one central location. But now the temple is a people and it expands and fills the earth. So it has the sense in which missions has changed from come and see to go and tell in the New Testament. But all that's happening, as I understand it, is that the Holy of Holies centered in Jesus and all the church united in Him is now expanding. The Holy of Holies is beginning to fill the earth. The temple of God is reclaiming territory from India to Ethiopia, the extent of the ancient world. It's just covering the globe in fulfillment of God's original kingdom promises and then What is only spiritual today will be realized physically when the new heavens and the new earth come. 
David is committed to build God a house. That's chapter 17. The Davidic covenant finds its whole basis in David saying, I want to build God a house. I have a house. I want him to have a house. And God says, you're not going to build me a house. Your hands are too bloody. But I will build you a house that is a dynasty that will never end. I'll raise up a king who will sit on the throne forever. First Chronicles 17. David's loyalty to God brings great military success. That's chapters 18 through 20. And then David's, then, then this is the point right here where we in the book of Samuel have the David and Bathsheba episode. David's great success in, in military might. Remember in first, sec, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 8, it's elevating David's great kingly successes. And it says that he kills the son of Nahash. He goes into battle with Nahash. That is the son of Nahash. Nahash is serpent in Hebrew. And David's last great battle is against the offspring of the serpent. Just like Saul's first battle was against Nahash, the serpent. But right after Saul killed the serpent king, he had his fall narrative to say he wasn't the real offspring who was to slay the serpent. Then just after David killed the son of Nahash, he had his fall narrative to say he's not the ultimate serpent slayer. But that's how Samuel works it out. Here, that's not the focus. So it doesn't even tell us about the David and Bathsheba episode. He's not hiding anything. It's just not the focus of his history. His history is very selective, and he's writing a sermon. And his focus is on David's faithfulness and his passion for God's presence in the temple. But then, we might ask then, why is it that it says in chapter 21, it actually mentions David's sin? Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. And David takes the census and we read in verse 8, David saying, I've sinned greatly. Now there's question why exactly this is considered a sin. Usually you would take censuses in the Bible at least in order to set up a military conquest. But God's already given David all the turf that God had promised David. Or it may have been that David is wanting to boast in how big his empire is. Regardless, it's viewed as sin. And God comes in and says, you have three options. And what David picks of the possible judgments is the one where God will bring a plague on the land rather than allowing enemies to enter in. Because David says, Verse 13 of chapter 21, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for His mercy is very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. And the plague comes and David pleads with God and he sets up an altar on this threshing floor of Aruna. And I don't think he's called Aruna in Chronicles. Ornan is what he's, how it's rendered here. So it's Ornan. And David purchases the land, and this is the spot then where David will build the temple. So it says in 22 verse 1, Here shall be the house of the Lord God, and here the altar of the burnt offering for Israel. 
And so at this point, David begins to collect all kinds of goods. He begins to be preparing for the temple, and he commissions Solomon to be the one who will build it. But he's too young and too immature. And so David goes out of his way, and we don't read this in Kings or Samuel. David goes out of his way to do all the planning, all of the preparation. He's not allowed to nail a board, but he's the builder. He's the architect of the temple. David is the builder of proper worship in Israel. And we're supposed to see that. Proper worship in Israel is essential for kingdom success. And proper worship in Israel is led by its Davidic king. That's the message of the book. It's setting us up for the new David who will build his new temple. That's the longing of the people. And with that temple, proper worship. A people surrendered to their God. Delighting, rejoicing. This book is filled with worship of the temple and people rejoicing in their God. Seeing sins forgiven and overcome. So chapters 1-9 through of Chronicles then focus on Solomon. And everything, even when he prays for wisdom. Where is he? He's at the then central sanctuary. He's at Gibeon praying to God. Honoring God with his life, and then God bestows wisdom, and then he gives his life over to the temple and its worship. What's so intriguing is it never gets us to Solomon's downfall. This book doesn't even let us know that Solomon sinned with all those women, that he went against all of God's instructions for kingship. This book, I think, gives clarity to the the way that Solomon can indeed, throughout the Bible, be viewed as one of the elect, one of the true remnant, because this book lets him die in godliness. It gives clarity to me how the book of Ecclesiastes can be written by what appears to be an old man, I think most likely Solomon, who's reflecting on the foolishness of his own existence and calling his followers not to be like that. This book doesn't focus on sin, it focuses on hope and restoration. I'm going to jump way ahead. All of the passing away is is the downward spiral after Solomon of the divided kingdom, but it only focuses on Judah, going deeper and deeper away from God. It gives extensive weight to Hezekiah and Josiah, the only two good kings who focused intently on worship in Jerusalem. But it also does some other things. In the book of Kings, Manasseh is the worst king in Judah. In this book, Manasseh is bad. But then he gets taken up to Babylon, and he gets saved. He repents. And then God restores him to Jerusalem. We don't read that in the book of Kings. This book is about repentance. It's about getting right with God. It's about proper worship, and it all happens because of the ultimate David. Okay, so the book closes with Cyrus' decree. Turn there with me to the very end of 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses, verse 23. 2 Chronicles 36, 23. I'm just going to contrast Kings and Chronicles and put up a picture of the tabernacle and make some further comments. 
Kings is about covenant failure. Chronicles is about covenant continuity and stability, that there's been a constancy, a theological constancy throughout the ages. Kings is about doom. Chronicles is about hope. Kings is about apostasy, idolatry, the role of a kingdom prophet. Chronicles is about God paying people what they deserve, retribution theology. And it's about the role of the king, ultimately David, to preserve right worship through his priests. The ending of, of Kings is about judgment and captivity with a hint of hope, whereas Chronicles ends with a shift from monarchy. No kingdom is mentioned. Persia is still in charge. It shifts it all to theocracy. Focus on the temple where God sits on his throne. It's an exilic community in Kings wondering why did the exile happen? And the answer, because of sin. Chronicles, instead, is a post-exilic community. They've already returned to the land, and they're saying, will the kingdom truly be fully restored? Yes, it will, through the great David, who will establish the super temple. Sins of Jeroboam and the promises to David are recurrent motifs. Over here, proper temple worship, the Davidic dynasty, Yahweh's kingship over all. The tabernacle which gives rise to the temple. The temple is simply twice the size of the tabernacle. Why is the, why is the tabernacle, the temple, so central in this book? Because it gives the two benchmarks of Israel's worldview. At the center of the first quadrant is God seated on the throne in the Ark of the Covenant. At the center of the first quadrant is the bronze altar where sin is addressed. And Israel enters in from this way. First of all, the tabernacle at the center of Israel is the only hope of Israel. It is the means by which the king over all is giving access through all of this system I mean, of uh, walls and curtains and guardians like the Levites. It's protecting Israel from lethal doses of God's holiness, and yet they can actually enjoy the glory of God. How? Because they enter in through the sacrifice. This is a book about proper worship being understood, not just recognizing the kingship of God, but recognizing that that king is holy and you are not. And yet that king opens the door for you to enter into his presence through the altar. This book is loaded with sacrifices, loaded with praise of people who have felt the weightiness of their sin and then felt the weight taken away. And what is the proper response? Praise be to God. And all of this is brought about by the great king, David. He's the one who sees the need. And he sets up the temple in accordance with God's plan. The book ends with this statement. Let him go up. The vision. Let him go up to build the temple. The vision was for repentant sinners. To find their home in the new temple. To see substitutionary atonement reestablished, the worship of God established in the temple. And what would result is great joy. Great joy would come. Oh, we could look at text after text of this. The mention of Cyrus at the end of the book, what does it do? It takes us automatically back to Isaiah. Where Isaiah said, Cyrus is the one who will bring in stage one, return to the land. But what does that mean? All that's left is stage two. 
spiritual reconciliation with God through the new covenant under the royal servant. It readies us for a new king who will lead the building of the new temple. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's where it moves from. You come to the end of Chronicles and it says, let him go up. Where are they going? To Jerusalem. And where are they coming from? Babylon. And then what do you read? After the genealogies in the beginning of Matthew, you read about people coming from Babylon, wise men from the east, and they're looking for the king. We've come from, from Babylon just like Cyrus told us to. We're looking for the king. And then he is named Emmanuel, God with us. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son. God with us. That's what he had said at the end of Chronicles. May the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, You are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's what was anticipated. And now you come to Matthew 28, and I'm just going to put it up here on the screen. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Jesus, all authority in heaven and on earth, has been given to me. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all of his people, may the Lord his God be with him. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let him go up. Go! Go! And see it happen. The temple of God being built. Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Or do you not know that you are the, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. No longer shall there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And the serpent's Servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. In Jesus, proper worship is reestablished at the temple. He is the great David, the hope of all the nations. This is the sequel that the Old Testament ends longing for. It is Christmas realized. Christmas realized the Son of God reigning through a manger, climaxing in the cross, rising from the grave, and seated at the right hand of the Father, and now every knee readying to bow, every tongue readying to confess that He is Lord over all, over all pain done away with in the future over all sin, Lord of sin, so that there is nothing that you can't beat because He's already beat it. The King who truly gives us all hope out of the deepest level of darkness and pain. Chronicles sets us up for this sequel, Savoring Our Savior, 
the king, ultimate King David, who has established now the presence of God, who is with us always, even to the end of the age. It's worth celebrating. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for a journey through your Old Testament. Law, prophets, writings, Old Covenant established, Old Covenant enforced, Old Covenant enjoyed. We praise you that Jesus has come. The curse has been overcome in him. The serpent has been slain. The blessing has come to the nations. And now we can join the countless thousands who are already in heaven saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Be honored in our lives. Help us treasure Christ more. Thank you for 71 weeks walking through the first three-fourths of your Bible. What a gift this has been to me. I pray that it's been a gift to these people. Continue to let it grow. Help them use their Bibles better to meet the resurrected Son of God who loves them and gave himself for them. We praise you for Jesus. We praise you for a reminder like this season. Be exalted in our midst. May proper worship happen. May we be a people who live with the mindset of repentance that we might celebrate our risen, exalted, royal, reigning King. For his glory we pray this day. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.